I'd invite you to take your Bibles with me and turn to the Gospel of John, the Gospel of John, and find the 12th chapter. John chapter 12, we'll just be looking at a very short passage in John 12 this morning, verses 20 and 21. And with our Bibles open, let's go to the Lord now in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we come to you this evening with hearts full of anticipation. Anticipation that we would fellowship with you and with one another by your Spirit. Anticipation, indeed, that we would see Jesus tonight. Would you help us to do just that, Lord? We would see him. We desire to see him. We are intent on seeing him. Would you reveal your son to us in his word? Open the eyes of the blind that they might see the glorious face of Jesus Christ. Soften the heart of the backslider that he might be restored into full fellowship with God Almighty. Unplug the ears of the deaf that they might hear the words of Jesus in his word, and that they might be moved unto repentance and faith and eternal life. We thank you for your word, and we thank you for this place where we can gather to worship you morning and evening each Lord's Day. Would you bless now the preaching of your word and speak to us where your servants are listening. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. A short passage this evening. I won't read any around it. I'm just going to read the two verses of our interest this evening. John chapter 12. <clears throat> I will say that we are on the back half of, uh, well, we're, at the, we're in the home stretch of Jesus' earthly ministry here. He's raised Lazarus from the dead a chapter prior and so offended the religious leaders of the day, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, that they are now plotting to both kill Jesus and to kill Lazarus again. Uh, Jesus has uh, had his triumphal entry into Jerusalem, so we know now that he is uh, a mere six days away from the Passover and from his pending death. So the things that happen in this last part of John's gospel are particularly significant. They encompass the last week of Jesus' earthly life. It's, it's uh, interesting to note that one scholar has called the Gospels um, extended introductions with a Passion Week. Uh, basically, the last quarter of most of our Gospels and nearly the last half of John's Gospel is Passion Week. And so what happens in these texts is particularly significant. But all that aside, that's where we find ourselves today. Jesus has uh, gone to the temple. He's entered Jerusalem. And we read here in verses 20 and 21 of John chapter 12, now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Amen. Thus ends the reading of God's holy and inerrant and inspired word. May he add his blessing now to its preaching. Fanny Crosby is a name that I'm sure is familiar to many or most of you. Fanny Crosby was born Frances Jane Van Alstyne in March of 1820. She authored over 8 
thousand hymns in her lifetime, many of which grace the pages of hymnals around the world. Our own Trinity hymnal, which we sing from every week, contains 10 hymns written by Fanny Crosby. And just to let, this was unintentional, our opening song this morning, To God Be the Glory, is a Fanny Crosby hymn. Isn't that fantastic? Now, Fanny Crosby, when she was six weeks old, uh, was stricken with illness. And many of you, I'm sure, are familiar with the story. The illness took her sight from her completely. Not, uh, not shadows and shapes, not some sight or fading sight over time. It completely took her sight from her at six weeks old, after which she never saw a thing again in her earthly life. <clears throat> she was completely blind, essentially from birth. In later years, she would comment that she had no living memory of a single image, not one sight or glimpse of her mother or father, of siblings or a house, of anything remained in her mind from those early weeks of life. It was as if she was born blind. Fanny Crosby, of course, was famous for her poetry and her hymns, and she was often interviewed and biographers wanted to write about her and deal with her trials and suffering and her great capacity to serve the Church of Christ by writing wonderful songs uh, with, uh, for which we are grateful and that we sing to God's praise often. And a journalist asked her the question towards the end of her life, Mrs. Crosby, with medical advancements being what they are, don't you think it's reasonable that you might regain your sight with surgery or some sort of medicine? And if that were possible, wouldn't you do it? Imagine asking someone who had been born blind from birth. I put myself in her shoes uh, and imagine having been born blind from birth and being asked, wouldn't you want your sight if you could get it? Now, just last night, my family and I were driving home from the Friendly Center and we're making our way up Old Oak Ridge Road towards the FedEx plant there on the left by the highway. And right over top of the FedEx building, and I'm, I want to delete the FedEx part from my memory, but right over that was the sun in one of the most brilliant shades of orange I've ever seen. I've never seen a manufactured color of that brilliance in my entire life. I've never seen a dye or a paint color or any other thing that matched the magnificence and splendor of this sunset ever it was better than clemson orange it was <laughs> it was amazing and there was a moment that flashed through my mind imagine not being able to see that it almost makes you choke up thinking about a person being kept from that sort of beauty and prevented from experiencing that sort of majesty in God's creation. We spent last Sunday evening talking about the heavens declare the glory of God and the skies above proclaim his handiwork. The moon and the stars and all the things that he has put in place. Imagine not being able to see any of that. The sunrise or the sunset, that blue color that the ocean takes on when the waves stop and it's total calm on the sea. The shades of orange and red and yellow and green that dot the landscape up and down the east coast as the autumn months roll in. 
the face of your loved one, the face of your child, and that look that they give you when you say that one thing that makes them smile that smile. Never seeing that. Never knowing it. Having no memory of it. And you ask me, would I take my sight if a surgery or a little bit of medicine would give it? You better believe it. You better believe I would. You know what Fanny Crosby said? When she was asked if surgery or medicine would give you your sight, would you take it? She said, no way. Absolutely not. For I know that when I die and open my eyes in heaven, the very first thing these eyes will ever see will be the face of my Savior, Jesus Christ. And that'll be worth the wait. Isn't that brilliant? Fanny Crosby longed so much to see Jesus that she was willing not to see anything else. She longed so much to see Jesus that she was willing not to see anything else. My friends, would you like to see Jesus like that? We talk a lot here at Christ Covenant Church about preaching Christ and Him crucified, about preaching a felt Christ, about making Him known above all else, about Christ being the center and object of our worship, the one to whom we look and the one from whom we are energized to go out in the world in Christian mission. There are places you could go to hear a five-step sermon on having a happier marriage or on Christian financial responsibility, but we believe that of first importance, as we read this morning in our assurance of pardon, is Christ crucified. It is our business as Christians to see and savor Christ in all of his majesty and glory. We want to know him as he is so that we may worship him as he deserves. But until we set our hearts upon seeing Jesus alone, making him the object of our interest, of our faith, of our affection, of our desires, of our efforts, we will never truly know him, never truly savor him or worship him or love him as we ought. And so if your heart's desire is to see Jesus, to see him in his love and compassion towards sinners, in his kindness and mercy towards the downtrodden, in his faithfulness and tenderness toward his sheep, in his suffering for your sins and his exaltation as your king, then I assure you this text and this word will not disappoint you. He's all over this book from cover to cover. We just need to ask the Spirit. We would see Jesus. In our text this evening, we have a group of Greek people who longed to see Jesus, and they did the only thing that made sense to them. They asked some of his followers for help in coming to see him. Of course, the text does not rule out that they had seen Jesus, caught glimpses of him earlier. They were there, after all, to worship uh, at the feast, at the Passover. These are Greek, probably proselytes, or perhaps Hellenized Jews who were in Jerusalem for the festivities. And so perhaps they had seen Jesus walking into Jerusalem, or riding in, rather, I should say. Perhaps they had heard the stories of him raising Lazarus from the dead. And perhaps they had seen him engaging in discourse with the Pharisees and Sadducees and teaching his disciples. It doesn't tell us. It simply says that they desired to see him and they did the only thing that made sense to them and that was to go to his followers and say we would like an audience with this jesus we want to know him more we want to see him 
better, we want to inquire of him to fully know him and to be known by him. So this evening, I want to look at our text from two very simple angles. Two very simple angles. It's, it's two short verses, although I would imagine that given the right setting, we could spend weeks and weeks talking about seeing Jesus. But I want to look at this short text from two angles. Number one, I want us to talk about our need to see Jesus, how important it is that we see Jesus. And then number two, kind of uh, camping on Philip and Andrew's um, participation in this matter, we're going to consider the need to show Jesus. We have a need to see Jesus and then a need to show Jesus. I want you to notice the approach that these Greek men take. Uh, it's Again, this is very simple. It's a short, very concise statement. There's not a lot of flash going on here. They don't offer a whole bunch of background. John is not interested in telling us uh, how many there were or the way that they dressed or what they were doing or how exactly their approach was. Rather, he simply says, they came to Philip and said, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Several things of note. Number one, I want you to notice their interest in the matter. Their interest in the matter of seeing Jesus. Clearly these men had an interest in seeing him more. It is often the case that those who catch a glimpse of Jesus desire to see more of him. That should be the case for each of us. As we talked this morning in Jonah chapter 2 of what it means to apprehend the mercy of God in Christ Jesus. The result of apprehending the mercy of God in Christ ought to increase in our hearts a desire to know him more and to see him more clearly, to become more fully enamored with him and in love with him and to experience the riches of what it means to gaze upon Jesus who is perfect and lovely and our friend and our savior. There's an interest they have in seeing Jesus and so they approach the apostles with this request. Now, it's often that people will say something like, if Jesus wants to show himself to me, then I'll believe. If Jesus would just show himself to me, if if I would ask him for something and he would reveal the reality of his existence, if he would just show himself to me in this answered prayer or in this response to my circumstances, then I would believe. Then I would want to know more of him. This is the, the word of the skeptic who knows all the stories, who's heard the language spoken, and who simply doesn't believe. But the person who says, if Jesus would just show himself to me, then I believe, doesn't actually have an interest in finding Jesus, do they? That's a smokescreen. It's never the case that people who are indifferent and antagonistic toward Jesus without a sight of him suddenly become enamored with him with a sight of him. Consider the context here. Jesus is in Jerusalem, in first century Israel, surrounded by countless tens of thousands of devout Jews who grew up and had spent nearly 1,500 years memorizing the Torah and the prophets, eagerly anticipating the arrival of the Messiah, and when he actually does show up and they see him, they decide to kill him. It's simply not the case. It's disingenuous for the skeptic to say, if Jesus would show himself to me, then I'd, I'd want to see more of him. Then I'd believe. The reality is, we don't see him because we don't want to believe. Don't fool yourself if you're a skeptic here tonight. 
If you're asking for a sight of Jesus in which to believe, my friend, it has been given to you. 66 books worth of it, a cross covered in blood worth of it, an empty grave worth of sight of Jesus, an exalted Savior that appeared to more than 500 after his resurrection, and a body full of believers who testify to the reality of his existence and his presence in our lives. If you want a sight of Jesus, simply look around and open your Bible. He's there. The skeptic has no excuse, just like the pagan living in the jungle somewhere who's never heard of the gospel has no excuse, because what can be known about God is seen and is evident in the creation, and therefore they're left without excuse on the day of judgment. These men, however, are declaring their interest in really knowing Jesus. They desire to see him, and the implication in that word see is one of intimacy, of knowledge and relationship. It's used elsewhere in Luke's gospel as an invitation to come and believe in Jesus even. These Greek men who are pious, godly men who love the Lord of Israel and his law are there to keep festival and covenant relationship with God. And they arrive here and they hear that Jesus is there and they realize that they have an opportunity to see the God that they worship enfleshed among them. And they desire to see him. Living far from the temple meant that while they could worship in private... They could only sacrifice in person at Jerusalem. So these Greeks, first of all, they had a number of things that interfered with their ability to fellowship with God in the way that the Jewish people did. Number one, they lived in some sort of dispersed location. Perhaps they were part of the Decapolis, which was a region of ten cities on the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee. And so maybe they were in proximity to Israel, in proximity to, to Jerusalem. Or maybe these were devout men from some other part of the world, some part of Europe or Asia Minor that had come down to hold festival because they were that faithfully committed to the worship of God. Forget not the Ethiopian eunuch in Acts chapter 8, who was a devout worshiper from Africa, who came all the way up to hold celebration, to celebrate Pentecost at the, uh, at the temple. So these men may have come from far away, and the implication is that they were distant from the place of God's worship, and so the only thing that they could do month by month and year by year, lest they traveled all, basically all year long, was to worship God in private, or what we might, what we might call secret worship. Their intimacy with God was limited to their ability to worship him around the table and teach their children who he was and what he had done. As they kept the Shema, as they were diligent to teach their children all the wonderful things that God had done for them, they were limited in their worship of God. And when they came to Jerusalem for the celebrations, they could only go so far as the court of the Gentiles. So outside of the temple was this large stone wall that partitioned off the area where the Jewish men could go from where the Jewish women could go. And even outside that was where the Gentiles could go. And there were signs. In fact, archaeologists have uncovered stones that are engraved with the language to the effect of any Gentile who crosses this line does so at threat of losing his life. Even devout worshipers of God, they were so desirous to be close to God in worship that they were willing to stay outside just to be as close as they could get. And so they were limited, they were hindered from fellowshipping with God to the fullest extent. And when they, uh, when they came to Jerusalem to celebrate the feast, they were limited again by the court of the Gentiles. But now, 
But now, Jesus, who is claimed among them to be God in the flesh, who's doing the very works that God does, who in John chapter 5 talks about all of these testimonies to the veracity of his claim to be God, they're hearing about him. They're hearing about the resurrection. They're hearing that the lame are given energy to walk and new limbs. And they hear that the lepers are being healed and that the blind are being restored to their sight and the deaf are able to hear again. They're hearing that he's doing miracles and caring for the people like sheep without a shepherd. And they say, wait a minute, we've read Ezekiel. We've read our Old Testament. We know who this must be and we want to see him now. To see him now. I want you to consider in light of the fact that these Greeks come from a distance to worship God at the feast, and when they encounter Jesus, their desire is to see him more. I want you to consider how your interaction with God in your private and family worship informs your desire to see Jesus when we gather for corporate worship. The extent to which your love for God grows on Monday through Saturday will have a direct correlation to the to the desire in your heart to see Jesus when you come here each Lord's Day for corporate worship. What God gave these Greek men in private, they, try, they are trying to build upon and amplify in a corporate setting. They're given the opportunity to come be around the people of God, to come close to where the presence of God is, to gather around the Son of God and to see Him. And it's placed upon their heart this great desire to do so because of their interaction with Him in private. And my friends, I would suggest that the extent to which you pursue Christ in Scripture in private worship will determine the extent to which you see Him in public worship and hear Him in the public preaching of God's Word. If your eyes are closed to him on Monday through Saturday, don't assume that you'll come here and hear an articulate man preach a sermon that will just open your, all of a sudden your eyes afresh to who Jesus is. Now we pray that that happens because God works through the ordinary means of grace, through the preaching of his word and the administration of the sacraments. But you can't be hard-hearted six days a week and come to church and hope that somebody else will soften your heart for you. We need to be a church full of people who long to see Jesus, who's in, who are intent on seeing Jesus every day of the week as we seek to grow in fellowship and faith. Notice also these Greeks, notice their respect in the matter. Their respect in the matter. These are Greeks. These are educated men. Philip is from Bethsaida. Andrew is a fisherman from Galilee. I'm going to be careful. I was going to use like an, an, an illustration there of where that might be relevant to us, but I won't. You just decide. Whatever that town that you know about, that you're like, nothing good comes from that town, that's, that's where they're from, to these Greeks. Yet they go to Philip, and what do they say? Look at the text with me. Sir, we would see Jesus. Sir, we would see Jesus. The respect in the matter. They go to one of Jesus' followers, and they have a knowledge of who he is, and so they engage with his disciples according to their knowledge of who Jesus is. Note the respect that they show to Philip here because of the respect that they have for Christ. Now, how often do people come to worship without a second thought to the lordship and majesty and glory and splendor of Christ, without the reverence that he deserves? Frankly, it's easy for us, isn't it, to march into a sanctuary like we own the place? To treat it like it's our tile-covered, pew-furnished playhouse? 
demanding to be fed. Demanding to hear a, a good sermon, like the, my favorite one that I listen to on a podcast or on the radio during the week. Demanding that it address my felt needs and what I think is the biggest problem in my life, rather than humbly approaching the Word of God in prayer and asking the Spirit to simply show us Christ. I'm always struck by the way some folks talk about their relationship with Jesus in terms that sound a lot like what you would post on Facebook about a good first date. Our music is filled with language about Jesus is my boyfriend. We wear t-shirts that talk about Jesus is my homeboy. We have bumper stickers that talk about Jesus being our co-pilot as if he's like the backseat guy in Top Gun. But in reality, Jesus is the king of the universe. He's the Lord of all creation. And when the author of this gospel, John, encounters the risen Savior on the Isle of Patmos, don't forget, John is the one who is leaning back against the chest of Jesus at the Last Supper in the most intimate posture of fellowship two men could have together. If there was a friend of Jesus, a beloved disciple, it was John. And when he encounters the risen Savior on the Isle of Patmos, he falls down on his face like a dead man. Like a dead man. These men, these Greek men, understand that about Jesus. And they approach his followers with the respectful, Sir, we would see Jesus. How much greater respect should you and I who know him intimately and personally afford him when we come into his presence in prayer, when we come into his presence in worship, when we come into his presence to hear his word? If you saw Jesus standing here in all of his risen glory next to this baptismal font, you would crawl in from that door and find your seat. And then you would look in his face and weep tears of joy that he loves you. Because he's not only the king of the universe, but he's your friend and your bridegroom and your savior. What a savior. What a Lord. I no longer call you servants, but friends, he says. But he's also our master. And we mustn't forget that. A king doesn't cease to become king because he's kind to his subjects. He's still the king. And we would do well to show the reverence that he deserves. As Calvin says, reverence begets modesty. In other words, we approach God rightly when we revere him correctly. I want to add here in this, uh, this point about their respect in the matter that these Greeks utilized what we might refer to as the ordinary means of grace in order to encounter Jesus. The ordinary means of grace. They didn't ask for a special revelation or a word from God. They didn't ask for a miracle or ask him to come aside to some room and do some trick for us that we might see the miracles we've heard about. They just wanted to see him better so they could know him more fully, so they could interact with him privately. So they could ask him questions and, and experience the love that they'd heard about in this person, Jesus Christ. They used the ordinary means of grace. They went to one of his friends and said, we just want to see him. Because we believe that if we see him more, we'll know him more and we'll love him more. There's no secret to finding Jesus, you see. 
You don't need a special revelation from God, a dream in the middle of the night, or a wet fleece outside your door. You don't need a miracle healing in the life of someone that you love and know or in your own life. You don't need some voice from heaven declaring that this is my son in whom I am well pleased and I will glorify him. Because when they actually got that, they said, was that thunder? You remember the story of Lazarus and the rich man. And the rich man is in Hades burning and torment. And he says, Father Abraham, send Lazarus just a drop of water on my tongue. And he said, we can't do that. There's a gulf fixed between us and we can't pass there and you can't pass here. And he says, very well, I'll suffer, but send him back to tell my family I have brothers and I don't want them to be in this torment. And what does Abraham say? They have Moses and the prophets. If they don't believe them, they're not going to believe if someone's raised from the dead. And what's the ultimate proof of that reality? Jesus has been raised from the dead, and many refuse to believe. You don't need a miracle. You don't need some special revelation from God. The ordinary and extraordinary means of grace that God has given us in the preaching of the word, the administration of the sacraments, prayer, and the worship of Almighty God are what we need to see Jesus. We should come here with eager expectation that we will see Jesus because he's here with us in his word and he inhabits the praises of his people and we speak to him in our prayers and he makes promises to us in the sacraments and we fellowship with his people who are likewise in union with him by faith as we talk among ourselves before and after our worship service as we sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs to one another making melody to the lord in our heart we do see jesus here and if we don't we're missing him because we're blind he's everywhere here jesus does not hide himself from those who seek him in fact he makes himself so available he's impossible to miss and he's promised that he will not turn away the humble heart that desires to come to him in faith. Neither will he turn you away if you seek him with all your heart. Notice also their insistence in the matter. Your Bible may say, we wish to see Jesus. The old translations have it, we would see Jesus. The term used here, would or wish, has to do with a person's will. The deepest intentions and desire of their heart. It's a very strongly worded statement. It's almost a demand. What they're saying to Philip is, it is our greatest expectation and our most humble desire to see Jesus. It's what we want more than anything else in the world. They really desire to see him. They want to know him more. These men are not indifferent towards Jesus. They're not casual fans hoping to get an autograph. Rather, they are more than curious they are insistent that they get to see him. They are pursuing him, and they're going to the only people who can help them find him, his followers. If only God's people were this adamant about seeing Jesus in worship, and if only our lives reflected him so much that non-believers would come to us in order to be introduced to him. John Hutchison says that Christ... When known in any measure, even the slightest measure, will become a thoughtful desire. When we know just a little bit of Christ, he is so sweet. He is so 
kind and compassionate and loving and merciful and perfect and righteous and holy and beautiful that we can't help but want more of him. And there's no earthly analogy. The, the, the flawed analogies abound. Having one bite of the most amazing meal makes you want to have more of it. One taste of the sweetest drink makes you want to drink more of it. One view of the greatest sunset makes you want to see more of them. Those all pale in comparison to who Christ is and the desire that seeing him should be in our heart when we catch just the slightest glimpse of him. Just the slightest glimpse of him. Does your heart long after sightings of Jesus as the psalmist says, like the deer pants for streams of flowing water. Do we long to see Jesus? To see him as he is, as he's been revealed in his word, to know him as Lord and Savior, to savor him in all of his beauty and majesty. Is your heart's longing to see Jesus? Is your heart set upon seeing him more? Lastly, in light of these Greek men who want to see Jesus, their need to see Jesus, I want you to notice their effort in the matter. Their effort in the matter. These men don't sit idly around wishing to catch a glimpse. You know, I heard he likes to leave the temple by that gate. Let's sit over there and see if he comes by. And if he does, great. And if he doesn't, well, it's a nice view of the Kidron Valley. That's not what we read. These men aren't just sitting around idly. They're pursuing him. They know where he's to be found, and so they go after him. They avail themselves of the proper means to catch a glimpse of Jesus. They know where he is, and so they go to him. I've used this illustration in other settings before. Um, but it has, it's relevant now. In 1996 or 7, I think it was 1996, there was an F3 tornado that tore through downtown Miami, Florida. And this tornado took glass off of skyscrapers and flipped cars in downtown city streets. Very rare, obviously, a tornado in Miami, Florida. Now, who's familiar with the show Storm Chasers? You know the Storm Chasers are these guys. They have somewhat of a death wish. They ride around in, like, heavily armored vehicles that are low to the ground, and they have all this radar equipment on them, and they drive around the countryside finding tornadoes in order to do whatever meteorological tests they're going to do on tornadoes. They want to film them and see what the insides look like of a tornado and so forth. Guess where Storm Chasers has never been filmed? Miami. Because if you want to catch a glimpse of a tornado, you don't go to Miami just because there happened to be one there once. You go to Arkansas and Oklahoma and Ohio and the places where tornadoes go all the time. They go out and pursue tornadoes because they want to see them and they go to the places where tornadoes are found. And if you want to see Jesus, you can't just sit back and hope that if I close my eyes and I lay my Bible next to my head on the nightstand, when I wake up in the morning, I might know more about Jesus. Rather, we have to pursue him with all our heart, chase after him like he's sweeter than honey and more precious than fine gold. These men pursue Jesus. They want to see him, and so they avail themselves of the proper means, and they go to the place where he may be found. They ask his followers to show him to them. And so therefore, I want us to think about the relationship that we have with the Spirit in seeing Jesus. We engage with the Spirit in prayer and supplication as we approach his word that he might show him to us. Because you and I can't do this on our own, friends. 
in our natural state, we're not inclined to look for Jesus because he confronts us in our sins. We're not inclined to see Jesus because he's in his pages and understood spiritually. Rather, we love ourselves, our own lordship, and we want to hide ourselves from Jesus because we love our darkness more than the light. And so we need the Spirit's power but to illuminate our minds and to show us Jesus in the pages of Scripture. But we must diligently seek after him, avail ourselves of the ordinary means of grace to find him in his word and in the church and among his people. If the great desire of our souls is to see Jesus, all of our religious engagement, all of the religious business that we do, must be about finding him and seeing him and laying hold of him. But if we simply want to be religious and don't want more of Jesus, then we've missed the whole point, haven't we? So as you hear the word read in your homes and in church, pray that you would see Jesus. As you hear the word preached, Pray that you would see Jesus. As we hear the word sung and prayed, pray that you would see Jesus. As we see the word administered in the sacraments, pray that you would see Jesus. Don't come to this place for a man, for a preacher, or for an experience, or for the music, or for the prayers. Come here for Jesus, because the rest of it is all background It's background to Him because He alone deserves our worship. We don't worship the Word. We don't worship the music. We don't worship eloquent prayers. We don't worship the sacraments. We don't worship a preacher. We worship Jesus. The rest of these things exist simply to point to Him, to shine a spotlight on Him. Come here for Jesus. Do you know why we wear this gown? It's not a pastor's weight loss program. If I keep this on over top of my dress shirt and tie and slacks, I'm guaranteed to lose a few pounds every calendar year. Actually, the threat is that I could just fill it up over the next few calendar years. We wear this Geneva gown for a reason. There's a theological reason why we preach with a gown on. Did you know that? We wear it so that way you would not see us, but only Jesus. I don't want you to be concerned with what type of shirt I wear, or the brightness of my tie, or the fit of my slacks, or the cut of my suit coat, or any of those things. I'll leave that to you all, well-dressed men and women in our congregation. We hide behind this Geneva gown so you wouldn't see us, you'd only see Christ, that we would disappear and fade away and not be a distraction to you if someone happens to like bright colors or happens to like have accidentally tattooed themselves in excess in their earlier years in life. We wear this gown to disappear so that way you would only see Jesus. Come here for him. And we need to see Jesus. These men need to see Jesus, and you and I need to see Jesus because he alone is life. Just Two chapters later, in John chapter 14, verse 6, this very familiar verse, Jesus will say, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you want eternal life, you need to see Jesus. Catch a glimpse of him. See how majestic and wonderful he is. And then set your heart upon seeing him more and more every day. 
we need to see Jesus. And when we look at him, when we finally see him, what do we see? Now, this text does not illuminate for us a great list of truths about who Jesus is. Of course, it goes on to talk about him being the son of man and him being glorified and him dying for his followers and others who, must, uh, who want to follow him must die to themselves. But what do we know about Jesus from Scripture, from John's Gospel? We know that he's our prophet. When we see Jesus, we see the revelation of God's word given to us. We know that Jesus is our priest. When we see Jesus, we see one standing at the right hand of the Father, ever living to intercede on our behalf and pleading his blood on behalf of our sinfulness that we might be acceptable in God's sight. When we see Jesus, we see a king. We see the one who rules in sovereign power over all, who is ever able to work his will in the universe and for us, who's never impotent in our difficult moments, who's always wise when things seem to go sideways, who's perfectly holy when the world seems to be crumbling around us. That's our king. We see our husband, the one who's betrothed to us by blood, who paid a bride price far greater than anyone in the history of the world has ever paid to purchase us to himself at the cost of his own life, who's gone ahead of us to prepare a place for us so that when it's completed, he'll return and take us to his father's house where we might dwell with him forever in eternal bliss and joy and happiness and sinlessness. When we look at Jesus, we see a savior who died on the cross for our sins, who paid the price that you and I deserve and absorbed the wrath of God that was rightfully due to us that we might only experience the ocean of God's mercy and kindness. When we look at Jesus, we see one who is loving towards the most unlovable, who is compassionate towards the most needy, who is tender to the most hard-hearted, and who shepherded his sheep and carried them in his arms, leaving the 99 to go find the one. And rather than throwing them over his shoulder like a sack of potatoes, he held that sheep in his arms and carried it tenderly back to the fold that he might feed it and water it and give it good pasture. That's what we see when we see Jesus. That's what we must look for when we read about him in the pages of his word. That's what should be on our hearts when we come here to worship him, is a desire to see that Jesus in all of his glory and all of his love for us at the cross. Do you need to see Jesus? Oh, you bet you do. And so do I. And so does the whole world. Let me bring this to a close. <clears throat> we need to see Jesus, and we need to show Jesus. Notice that Philip is given this request. Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Look at verse 22 with me. Philip went and told Andrew, and Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. You know, Andrew is always showing people to Jesus. Back in chapter 1 of John's gospel, verses 41 and 42... He declares that we've seen, <clears throat> oh, excuse me, verses 43 and following. Uh, yeah, he says, uh, he found Philip and said to him, follow me. And Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and, and Peter. And Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we found the one who Moses wrote about in the law, Jesus of Nazareth. And so, it's, I said, Andrew, Philip's uh, disposition has been to go bring other people to see Jesus since the beginning of the Gospels. 
He's all about fulfilling his joyful privilege and duty to show others the Christ that he knows and loves and follows. My friends, that's how our unbelieving world is going to come to know Jesus, is if we show him to them. You're familiar with Ancestry.com? Ancestry? They, uh, they keep track of genealogical records and census records and so forth, and you can register for a membership and they'll find your family's name and history and trace it back as far as they're able to trace it back. And some people can trace their name back quite a distance, uh, quite a long distance, in fact, if you do the work and you're willing to do the labor of uh, pouring over these documents and seeing these connections and relations and so forth. And it's really quite fascinating if you're into your ancestry and want to know your history. I want to suggest that there's a spiritual Christian ancestry.com that exists. And that you and I, every Christian person in this room, and in fact, every Christian person living in the entire world today, can trace their ancestry back to one of 12 people. Just like we know that we can all trace our ancestry back to two original people, Adam and Eve, right? All of us can trace our Christian ancestry back to one of 12 people. The ones that Jesus spoke to and ministered to and walked around with in the Gospels. The ones whom he prayed for in John chapter 17, where he says, and I pray that all who believe in what they hear from them will be kept in unity as well. We can all trace our Christian lineage back to one of 12 people. So here's my question for you. Our need to show Jesus is so great because the only way the world is going to find him is if they see him in us. If we live lives like Christ that compels people to say, I want to know more about him. I'm going to go to you to find out. So the question is, 100 generations from now, 2,000 years from now, when all the records are laid out on the table, will anyone be able to trace their Christian heritage back to you? Will anybody be able to see those little leaves that pop up on the corner of that Ancestry.com that says you have another connection? And they click on it and there's a census about your great-great-grandpa that lived in some town somewhere and did some job someplace. And they're going to trace that all the way back. Will those leaves be anywhere in your story? Will people be able to trace their Christian heritage back to the apostles through you? I hope that they do. In fact, our church exists for that purpose, to proclaim the word of God so that way people would see Jesus. To model the grace of God, so that way people would see Jesus in us. And to extol the glory of God, so that way people out there would come to know Jesus through us, from this place to the ends of the world. John Brown, John Brown of Haddington said this on his deathbed, and it is an appropriate way for us to conclude our time this evening. Christian, commend Jesus. I have been looking at him for these many years and could yet never find a fault in him. Many a comely person I have seen, but none so comely as Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this, your word, and for your son. We would see more of him, Lord. Would you grow in our hearts a greater desire to see Christ and to know him? And then 
change our lives and make us the sort of men and women and children who others can see our relationship with Christ by our lives, that they might come to us and ask to see Jesus? Would our spiritual heritage be a legacy of faithful witness to the person and work of Christ and the reality of his lordship over our lives? We pray that many, many for generations to come would believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved because of the testimony of the men and women and children of this place as we show others the Jesus that we love to see. We pray this in his name. Amen.